Hello, and welcome to the Professor Podcast with Ruth and Claire. Each episode, we talk about a particular topic in the life of a professor. We are tenure-track faculty members in the sciences, working at a primarily undergraduate university in California. The purpose of our podcast is reflection, so we bring something we think is working and something we're working on to discuss. Over the course of my career, I think I've shifted more from oh, science teaching, what a great way to talk to people about science, away from that more towards science teaching, what a great way to work with people in the context that happens to be science. And they see the experiences that I've, that I've had. Number one, it's they, they thank me for sharing that because being vulnerable is key to teaching. Um, but also it kind of gives them language. It kind of gives them perspective. It gives them ideas on what they might face, and and they might be better prepared to deal with it. Welcome to the Professor Podcast with Ruth and Claire. I'm Claire. And I'm Ruth. Today for this episode, we want to bring an awesome resource to you, the Underrepresentation Curriculum Project. So a lot of us in classrooms want to know how to address race and underrepresentation in sciences or in any discipline. And we don't really know how to start that conversation or we're worried that we're going to open a scary can of worms. This resource provides lesson plans and materials for leading these conversations in a sort of choose your own adventure way where you can incorporate as much or as little as you want to. We're delighted to interview Moses Rifkin and Johan Tabora in this episode. Moses is the originator of this underrepresentation curriculum project and they are both editors of the curriculum. In this episode, Moses and Johan tell us why having conversations about race and underrepresentation in the classroom can be beneficial and how the curriculum can support instructors in leading those conversations. So they'll be referring to the underrepresentation curriculum as the URC, and they also make reference to the AAPT, which is the American Association of Physics Teachers. And that's actually where I first met them at a workshop that they led on social justice in physics. And it's where I got to sample some of the awesome materials that they provide. Moses and Johan are both high school physics teachers, so the conversation we had with them often focuses on those areas. But the underrepresentation curriculum is used by instructors from middle school through college and across broad academic fields, so don't feel left out if you don't teach high school physics. Also, they had so many good ideas to share with us that this episode is longer than usual. So settle in, get cozy, and let's talk about the underrepresentation curriculum. All right, so thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Moses and Johan. It's awesome to be here. Glad to be here. Cool. So um, we were wondering first if we can just stop with who are each of you, and I'm going to let you guys decide who goes first, and maybe just sharing a little bit about your journey as an educator, and so whatever that means to you. So either CV-type information or your personal life journey or whatever you'd like to share. Um, how detailed do you want this? Right. Well, <laughs> 40 minutes later. Go for Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll go first for this one. Um, okay. My name is Moses Rifkin. I'm a high school teacher in Seattle, uh, and I've been high school teaching science, mostly physics, um, for almost 20 years now, and I've been in Seattle for about 15 years. Uh, I started teaching science um, right out of college, and... I found a journal that I had written in at the time saying, well, I'll do this for a year and then I'll go back to grad school. Uh, so I think my initial plan was not to become a teacher, but um, I really loved it. And 
over the course of my career, I think I've shifted more from, oh, science teaching, what a great way to talk to people about science, away from that more towards science teaching, what a great way to work with people in the context that happens to be science. Um, so as a teacher, I think my orientation is increasingly about um, trying to make authentic connections with students and help them sort of get where they want to go. Uh, and for the first maybe five or so years of my, my science teaching, I sort of had my science teaching brain and my activist social justice brain um, as sort of separate parts of my identity and um, was in a little bit of conflict as to like how and whether to bring those things together. So happily, um, I figured out that there was a way to maybe do both in some lessons that I started teaching um, I think 13 or 15 years ago, uh, and that was all well and good. Um, this is maybe the short version of, of a longer story, but um, teaching those lessons got some media attention, and that media attention led to some amazing teachers being interested in the work that I was doing, including Johan, and that was sort of the birth of um, this team that is working on the underrepresentation curriculum. So that's work I'm really proud of. It feels like the best science teaching I do in the way I want to be doing science teaching now. Um, and I'm really, really excited for the way we're doing that as a collective and, and for both the work we've done and for like what the future might hold for the URC. How was that? Oh, wow. About 15 things you said just totally resonated with me, make me want to have a whole podcast about them. But one thing I was going to say is we just talked about me and my husband we're just moving to America for nine months just to try out this professoring business. And then we were going straight home. And so obviously that's seven years later. So, yeah. yeah. My turn. Yep. Um, hi, I'm, I'm Johan Tabora. I'm a physics teacher in Chicago with the Chicago Public Schools. I'm also a doctoral student in science education at the University of Illinois Chicago. Um, I'm Filipino-American. I'm an immigrant. Um, immigrated from the Philippines in 96 um, to do engineering right in college. Um, so my journey to where I am now started really there. Um, you know, when I got here, you know, a lot of these aerospace engineering jobs or I didn't know them were mostly for, uh, us citizens. And so that was a, that was a door closed in my face. And so I had to pivot a little bit and think about what to do next. Like physics decided to go to grad school, you know, got my, to get my doctorate in, in physics, maybe do research in physics. Um, but then that was a really eye-opener in terms of um, racialized experiences for me as a, as a brown Asian immigrant, right, coming in. And I wasn't ready for uh, the whiteness of physics in grad school specifically. Um, you know, I wasn't ready for that. And so long story short, you know, trying to make sense of that, a lot of it feeling just, you know, inadequate, a lot of it also just not understanding what was going on. Um, so long story short, didn't pass my quals, right? So I had two tries to pass the big qualifying exams, didn't make it. And I had to reevaluate this, this journey um, that I embarked on, but I really liked science and I wasn't about to give up on it yet. Um, and I really like people. I don't know. Um, I found people a lot more interesting to deal with uh, as opposed to 
what, an electron temperature profile, right? So uh, people are more dynamic. And so I decided to give teaching a try. Um, my first uh, taste of it was with a fifth grader. You know, we got hooked up through the public schools um, and uh, mentored him with science fair. And then from there, mentored other high school students wanting to get some experience with, you know, big multi-million dollar physics toys. And so that was my aha moment in terms of, hey, you know what, maybe I want to be a teacher. So I went to grad school again to, to get a teaching degree out east. Um, I missed the Midwest. And so I came back to Chicago and I've been teaching at, at my school for, um, this is my 17th year teaching. Um, so yeah, same school. So I've been there for 17 years and um, started my grad program about three years ago, three and a half years ago um, in science education. And really my path to this was understanding, like Moses said, um, for me, it was trying to make sense of why I failed, air quotes, in, in physics, you know? So this is about 2014, I think 2013 is when I first reached out to Moses, I think, because um, I found his curriculum somewhere. And, and so that was the genesis of this, you know, just trying to make sense of my own experiences into why I failed in physics and, and kind of trying to make, trying to have students have that experience of, Hey, this is what this, this happened to me. And this, I don't know, this might happen to you, but I wanted to share what I'm, I've been through so that you can be ready, if you will. So that was the, um, so that's why I'm involved with this. You know, it's, it's to, for me, still an ongoing process of making sense of this these experiences, but also wanting to change this culture that, that I found myself in and did not survive in, if you will. So, yeah. and this is where I'm at. I love it. That's, that's a great story of how you came to be involved. Um, how did you find Moses? Um, it's called Google. It's called Google. There you go. <laughs> Even in 2013. <laughs> I don't know. I, I forget. You know, I tried looking back at my email saying, when was the first time I met Moses? And it wouldn't give it to me. It was 2018. And I go, it's got to be 2013, 2014, something like that. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so that, that was it. And, and so, Moses, you told us a little bit about this, but how did you, how did you come to be, to be involved in this underrepresentation project? Um, I think, uh, I mean, it started just, it wasn't a project. It was just a lesson that I devised for my students. Um, uh -huh. and, uh, there's a, a conference every year called the people of color conference for independent schools, um, for independent high schools, um, where one of our administrators was presenting about, I think, cultural, culturally competent, uh, I forget the phrase that he used at the time, but it was something like, you know, cultural responsiveness in the classroom. And I talked a little bit about this lesson and there was a teacher in the audience, uh, named John Burke, who is a member of the editorship who runs a physics education blog. And so he was intrigued by what he saw me talking about and asked me to write a blog post. Um, Johan, I don't know if that was a blog that you read back in the day. Could have been. Could have been. Could have been. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it didn't start as a, as a capital P project, but as, as I started hearing from teachers that they were interested and excited about this and that they were um, trying it out in their own classrooms and doing it in their own way, it felt like, oh, we should 
we should try to see if it can be bigger than just something that happens in my classroom. Um, so I think that was where where it became a, a capital P project, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Johan invested really early. He's like, uh, you know, employee number three of the, the URC. <laughs> An early was adopter. It? I like it. But then I think formally, right, it was 2017 in D.C., or, or prior to that AAPT summer meeting that when we started, hey, let's get together and see each other face to face. Yeah, that was, you know, put the face to the name. <laughs> I remember that so vividly, like we had been been working together on this project for about a year or maybe even longer, but yeah. um, had never met in person. And That's right. That's we had right. a very lovely, but uh, I'm, you know, an introverted person and feel pretty socially awkward. So uh very lovely and maybe a little awkward dinner with the editors, many of whom were meeting. That's for the right. First time. That's right. That's right. I think it was Cuban food. Yes, it was. Something Ooh. like that. Mm -hmm. The source of all good collaborations. <laughs> with a very the... underwhelming drink. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> As too. I remember that dinner was. Yes. <laughs> you should ask them for sponsorship. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Johan, I really appreciate you sharing that experience because um, my mm -hmm. first grad school experience was an unmitigated disaster. With um, It was mm. just so terrible. And part of it, too, a little bit was that navigating a different culture. And as a white immigrant, it's different, but just still being somewhere different was really intense. And mm -hmm. I think just being able to tell students that it's one of the most powerful tools. Mm -hmm. And so it's, that's awesome. And I think it's something that a whole lot of people don't really think about. You know, this this transition to this academic space that is um, that has its own culture. Right. And if oh, you're not yeah. privy to that culture, you're like, what is going on? You know, so so that was a big shocker. And, I, and it wasn't until, you know, later on in my life, maybe five, six years ago, when I started thinking, oh, you know, it really wasn't me. <laughs> oh, you know, know, you know, it, it was it was, you know, just it was not the not meshing of my view and that culture but it's not so cool that that little nugget created this connection with instead of i don't know for so many of us it just becomes a secret shame like even when you're saying air quotes failed out like it mm. just becomes this thing instead of now it's you're turning it into such a positive source mm -hmm. yeah i hope so yeah it's been good so far um, I wish I had said this earlier, and, and maybe it's especially relevant to this being a podcast, but um, I was remiss in not mentioning that I'm a white man, and I think one of the real joys for me of having this be a, a collective endeavor is, um, in my first attempt, the URC was like, what I thought the underrepresentation curriculum was, was, you know, reflective of my own background and my own experience, and so... It was sort of something for other people's benefits and, and something that Johan and some of the other editors have brought is, um, like any good project, just having a more diverse range of, of perspectives in the project is making the project stronger. Which is a perfect modeling for physics, right? Concur. Yep. So could you guys tell us a little bit more about what the underrepresentation curriculum project is <clears throat> and um, yeah, what is it like in its, its current form? Let's let's alternate who goes first. Okay, okay, I'll go first. Um, it's it's a uh, we like to call it a modular set of lessons um, that that an educator when they come into to this project they can see that 
it's a set of lessons roughly divided into three big chunks. Um, we call it the beginning, the middle, and the end. Perfect. It's very creative, <laughs> right? Um, and so the beginning lessons are more like, hey, here's how you set the stage. Here's how to get the students to think, start thinking about, um, you know, systemic issues uh, from a systemic lens. Um, you know, we don't dive into the really hard stuff immediately. You know, we want to kind of get them ready. So some of those lessons might be, hey, is, is physics objective or subjective? Or um, let's think about uh, representation in physics. Let's look at data and let's try to make sense of these graphs. And then from there, you know, once the students have kind of gotten the appetizer, if you will, so then they, we get into the middle section, if you will. Um, and these have uh, a whole plethora of lessons ranging from um, systemic racism, sexism, there's um, white privilege, uh, help me out most. <laughs> there's- um, The myth of the model minority is one. The model minority. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, so then that, that's the middle part. So there's about, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 standalone lessons that teachers can pick and choose what might fit their uh, context and their capacity. And then the, the end unit is what we call action. So that's where um, students and teachers can kind of, uh, teachers can come in and see what ideas um, other teachers have had to, to kind of actualize what they've learned. You know, so Mosey, you wanna go from there? Just that, that I think is 95% the exact words I would have used. Um, I would just add that, that the modularity is important because we feel like different teachers in different contexts have different things that they need from the curriculum. So rather than the URC being one set of lessons that everyone teaches in the same way, we've tried to set it up so that uh, a physics teacher interested in talking about race in the context of science might use different lessons than a biology teacher interested in talking about sexism. Um, the other thing that I think is sort of special about the URC is it it is talking about the things that Johan mentioned in the context of science. So, so the systemic racism lesson is not just let's learn about racism, but let's look at how racism impacts the practice of science. And let's look at how um, this idea of racism that you're learning about might be one thing that explains the underrepresentation that you saw in the beginning lessons. So everything is really um, pegged to talking about the practice of science instead of just being separate from teaching science. That's lovely. And then, and then one thing just to add, I think we want to emphasize too, is the, uh, the end, the last unit, which is on action. And what we've found collectively as, you know, the teachers is that if students, if we just talk about things, you know, a lot of students kind of just feel, okay, then what? Blah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so they want to actualize things. And so, um, there's a big emphasis on trying to do something at the end so that they can start moving in that direction of being activists and taking what they learn and actualizing something. And we find that students, just like students have brilliant ideas about science, um, students have brilliant ideas about how to change the culture of science. We don't need to teach them that. We just need to give them a space to, to talk and, and to do. That's lovely. And do you find, so are they coming up with project ideas for within the school or, or what kind of, what kind of things do they come up with? Among other things, um, 
this is my <laughs> this is my bad spot. <laughs> this is where I'm weakest in terms of how to teach this. And so one thing that I am planning on doing is uh, we have in our school what's called a culture and climate team comprised of teachers and students. And they identify, you know, what are these salient problems or issues that are cropping up that pertain to equity and social justice and also, and this is my plan, is looking at you know, kind of having my students interface with that team and maybe identify one or two problems that we can create an action plan that they can implement. You know, if I have mm -hmm. underclass students, you know, juniors, sophomores, um, they, then they can, you know, work through, work with these, work these problems out in their, the succeeding years. That's great. Um, yeah, I think to answer your question, Claire, my students have mostly tried to um, apply what they've learned to our school. So um, something like making a mural of physicists that hung in our entryway that was all physicists of color or black physicists. Um, that happened a couple of years ago. Um, cool. Or wanting, I teach cool. in a middle and high school, wanting to teach what they'd learned to middle schoolers. So I think there's a... Mm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, super awesome, right? Like that's so much better than me saying, Hey, now we're going to teach the middle schoolers. The fact that they generated that idea, um, totally. made it meaningful for them. Um, there's oh, also, I, like that. I might steal that. Yeah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> yes. that's, that is the URC. Um, one thing that I'm really proud of is, is to sometimes there's been like a very personal connection of like students recognizing that they have had very few teachers of color or science teachers of color in, in their schooling in our school turns into, you know, uh, I think last year or the year before, their action was, we want to meet with the administrators and tell them how important it is as, as students of color and also as white students for us to have more science teachers of color. And we want to know why there haven't been more science teachers of color. What's the process that's, that's keeping that from being the case? So um, that feels really personal and meaningful to me. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's powerful because something like that students don't often realize in all whatever arena they're in, they have a lot of power and it doesn't feel that way. But if they're all saying, Hey, why is this happening? People might pay more like attention. One, mm -hmm. one thing I like to, to say to adults, cause I don't think students need to hear this necessarily is that like, we happen to live in a time where students are visibly taking political and justice oriented action. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think getting out of their way or, or sharing the power that I have in the classroom so that they can sort of use that lever feels really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question. Go ahead. I have a quote to share that I think, oh, at least for me, kind of undergirds why I do this. Oh, yes, please. Okay. So I've been rereading <laughs> Pedagogy of the Oppressed Ooh. by Paulo Freire, right? And so one of the uh, most powerful lines in this book to me is not by him, actually, but uh, Richard Shaw, who was doing the foreword, and I'm going to read it. And, and so the quote is this, right? So there is no such thing as a neutral educational process. Education either functions as an instrument that is used to facilitate the integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity to it, or it becomes the practice of freedom, the means by which men and women deal critically 
and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. So, so that, that to me, I think is an un, kind of underscores why I do this. You know, it's, you know, I think that if students learn about these issues as they are embedded in science, right, then, then it's not, they don't see science as neutral. You know, that's the big farce that, that's always out there, right? And so then they see then that, hey, we have a voice, we can do something, and let's do it. So, so, so that, that speaks to this, to why we do this. That's wonderful foreshadowing, because that was actually our next question. So wonderful, <laughs> perfect. So yeah, but um, that's, that super resonates with me, just that even just education can be freedom. And that's, mm. yeah. But um, yeah, so that was the next question that why is talking about identity in the classroom and using a curriculum that's intentionally justice orientated, useful, necessary and important? wish I didn't have to go first on this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're like, uh, can we change that rule? Yeah. No. I'll go first on the first question, then you go first for the rest of them. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, my sort of short little slightly glib answer is uh, because everything we do is identity oriented. And so the, I mean, the practice of science is identity oriented. And so um, when Johan reminds us that like education is not neutral, to make science teaching non-identity oriented is to send a really specific message to students, which I think is a lie uh, and is false and not coincidentally functions to exclude certain groups from, from science. So I don't see the URC's embrace of identity as something particularly uh, active so much as just like realigning with the way the world works and, and I'll build up, build off of that. The, um, the idea then that, you know, identity is, is central to education because who we are shapes how we learn and how we learn shapes who we are, right? So there's that, that kind of relationship like that. And so I think if students then learn how to learn and talk and do something about you know, the social injustices that they find in their class, in their school, and then eventually in the world, right? It gives, what I found is that it gives students a language and the tools, right? To make sense of, of how they fit in this society where they're at, you know? So that I think is powerful. It gives them, it gives them a voice. It gives them the language, the tools to, to, to make sense and to, to make changes, right? Um, in this society that, that they find themselves and, and what's, and to, to, I think to what Moses said earlier, right. It, it hits students differently depending on where they are, depending on what their identities are. You know, if, you know, understanding, doing something about learning about racism and, and meritocracy, you know, will, will hit a student of color differently than I think than a white student who's more privileged. So that I think speaks to the modularity of, of, of what we do and, and the power of what we do. To get totally. even a little bit more specific, I think the idea that science is, um, is a human practice and not an objective practice comes as a surprise to my mostly white students because I think they've been, they've been taught 
that their experience is outside of race or that they don't, they have sort of a race neutral experience. So um, mm -hmm. I think that idea comes as a little bit more of a surprise for my, my mostly white students. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, speaking as a white person, that was a surprise for me when I learned it. I attended your workshop at the AAPT and one of the lessons that you mentioned here was whether science is objective or subjective and it blew my mind it was so exciting and I was ranting at people about it for months afterwards so it was really effective and really yeah it was really powerful and I think too that sometimes when we talk about science being totally neutral it's also really off-putting to certain students when we totally deny any creativity or anything that will come in do you know what I mean? Like that it's just is this neutral set of laws and there's mm. no room for people who are interested in creativity and stuff. So I think that's like a side aspect, too, of introducing that to people, that there is humanness in it. Uh, Ruth, you mentioned that. That's my favorite lesson to start oh. with. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. And that's a lesson that was not in the URC when I first taught it. Like that, that comes from from the sort of collective effort, which is rad. This reminds me of a topic I heard you talk about, Moses, on a different podcast, where you said something about how not talking about identity and minoritization in the classroom can be misleading for especially the majority students. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. Um, when I first was talking about the URC, I think the concerns that I heard from science teachers was like sort of a... <gasps> How, how, what a, what a dangerous idea. Um, and I think my answer to them at the time was just to, to point out, as you just said, that like, we're constantly making a choice as science teachers to talk about identity or not. So to say, to say that teaching the URC is like injecting something, I think mm, sort of misreads how we move as teachers in the world. Like we're already injecting something. And so we should just be really intentional about what it is that we're we're choosing to inject. And I, I actually wish I hadn't used the word inject there because a thing that I hope we can double back to about the URC is that it's very explicitly not about telling students what to think, but about creating a space for them to decide what to think. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe inject is the wrong word. But um, yeah, I think, you know, if I don't teach the URC, if I only talk about kinematics as a physics teacher, then I'm, then I'm communicating to students that physics is not about identity i'm not i'm not communicating to them that it's outside of identity but i'm communicating that it is identity free which i think is false hmm. sure um i used to work at a very predominantly white institution and it was quite um like a lot of the kids there were only in classes with other white men really in the classrooms and then when they would go and they would work in palo alto and stuff and i guess it seemed normal to them that all of their colleagues and employees that they would hire would be white and it just can perpetuate so far beyond that first classroom, just that idea that, like you said, that mis misleading information that, yeah, that's there is no misrepresentation. If you leave that out, then it has huge consequences later on. There's, um, I think the, the explicit criticism that I hear of the URC has gotten quieter and quieter over the years, because I think, um, especially in the last year, we now live in a moment where like more and more science teachers are seeking things like this out. I don't know if that criticism has gone away or just has gotten very quiet. Um, but um, I think there's often a sense that talking to students for privileged identities about that privilege is 
like designed to make them feel bad or designed to, you know, browbeat them into submission. Um, whereas I really think it's just about seeing the truth more clearly. Um, so I've started asking my students at the start, um, you know, if there was like some part of your life that was true that you didn't know about, wouldn't you want to know about it? And fostering that sort of like positive orientation to learning more about, you know, the fact that you may be walking around with a sign on your back that everyone else can see, but you can't see. Um, most students want to know what's on that sign. So yeah, I'm not coming into this trying to make anybody feel bad, precisely the opposite. That's a great way to put it. Well, I love that aspect then of the activism at the end, because then that's a perfect opportunity for and what will we do like what what can you do with this privilege that you have instead of just just feel bad about that sign and these problems are so complicated and and entrenched that i really i really think we need everybody right this isn't a problem for people from oppressed identities to solve or people from privileged identities like we just we need all of our students on board and so how as a as a science teacher so we, we, of course, aren't usually trained to facilitate conversations about race and gender, et cetera. So how um, do we have to already be experts in this to start approaching the curriculum or how, how does that work? Short answer, no. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I think the hardest part for, for teachers when, when they are faced with this is like, well, I don't, I don't know what to say or I'm not sure I have the tools to talk about this. Um, and hey, you know, we were too. <laughs> we're all unprepared or underprepared to, uh, I think, to do any of this. And, you know, like it, it's a constant reevaluation of what I know and what I need to know in order to teach this, right? And so um, how do we do this? Pick something. Pick something, you know, if, if you, once you get in, if you have the curriculum in front of you, pick something that is 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 maybe comfortable to you you know i love the i love starting like i mentioned earlier starting with something uh by looking at physics as an objective or subjective field and i feel that that is a, that is fairly low key in terms of not very controversial and and the the types of conversations that i have with students um is super cool in terms of they really dig into this idea of wait wait how do you know physics is subjective? Isn't an electron an electron? You know, so so then we get into well, that's nature, and that's not how you that's not science. So 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 these deep conversations kind of get going with that. So I digress. Sorry, but but learning how to just to do it, I I would say just I know pick pick something that from one of the lessons um, find find a partner. I would also argue. Find somebody that you can talk to and who would be maybe even willing to do this with you and and just have that person to, to bounce ideas off of. I think that would be super important. Which, just to throw in a side plug, is part of the reason that we packaged with the URC is access to an online discussion community because we're hoping that, um, you know, we've had 1,800 people access the curriculum and we sort of imagine that as those people start asking each other questions the answers that emerge from that community will be better than anything that Johanna or I could come up with. Um, Claire I think in response to your question you know Johan's right you don't have to be an expert. I always scratch my head a little bit because I don't feel like I'm an expert in any part of my job and it feels a little disingenuous to say to apply a different standard of expertise to talking about identity than it does to talking about 
you know, the best way to teach Newton's second law. And I think as science teachers, we're generally pretty comfortable with the idea that, okay, like I have some ideas for where to start and I'm going to see how they land and then I'm going to do better the next time. I think that that, that orientation to teaching is exactly how teachers can approach the URC. It feels like a, maybe a little scarier because it's feels very different, but um, again, the URC isn't about positioning the teacher as the person who has the answers. It's positioning the teacher as the person who's asking some questions and then letting students, creating a space for students to talk to each other. So um, I still always feel nervous before I facilitate the URC. I mean, I feel nervous before every class, so that's a whole other thing. But um, but it's it's I, I don't think it's all that much scarier than what we do as teachers all the time. You know, I, I think it's scary because nobody wants to talk about these things. That's the thing, right? And, and you know, nobody wants really to talk about racism or sexism, especially in a science class, because, hey, it's neutral. Um, but but the, at least in my head, you know, that's the vision that we're trying to strive for is, right, let's, let's normalize this. Let's make this, let's make talking about this part of, of teaching, because it, you know it's teaching is not neutral. So so let's let's embed in how we teach. I mean, what the world really is like, and so then it becomes a normal thing, right? So so in my head, you know, the more teachers that you know Moses, you said eighteen hundred or something, have accessed the curriculum, and then you know that's a groundswell of just you know um, fermenting ideas that are just going to be better and better as time goes on. Um, I think that would be fantastic. To, to have be in that 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 space where teachers are just bouncing ideas off of each other and then I can I can see then that maybe five ten years from now it might not be as scary as as it is now you know you know obviously as a woman I'm not minoritized in the world but I can feel minoritized in physics and so sometimes I feel frightened about bringing things up where they're like oh here's this lady agenda again or one student used to always talk about my socialist agenda because I was from Europe, but it's kind of true. But anyway, like, so sometimes, like, I just want my male colleagues to talk to students about things. So I'm like, they're going to listen to you more about this. And this is just me doing the lady physics stuff. But does that come up for people when they're trying to do this stuff? Or is there a difference in how people approach it depending on your identity? If you know mm. what I mean. Um, that is something I struggle with a lot. Um, because I remember when I first started doing this, one of the things I was thinking of was, am I just letting out bad laundry? <laughs> you know? And am I just trying to make myself feel better? It's hard because, you know, as, as a person of color and I teach in an urban high school, you know, I find that students, and this is anecdotal, you know, when students talk to me or give me feedback, X, Y, Z, but, but, I find that when when students see that they are also a person of color and they want to get into engineering, want to get into physics, and they see the experiences that I've, that I've had, I think it becomes more of, number one, it's they, they thank me for sharing that because being vulnerable is key to teaching, you know. Um, but also, like like I mentioned earlier, it kind of gives them language. It kind of gives them perspective. It gives them ideas on what they might 
face and and they might be better prepared to deal with it right so but yeah there's always that 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 looming idea of am i you know if especially with students who are privileged and white and they look at me and i've had those and i've always you know doubted myself every time i teach this i'm like i wonder if that student's just thinking doing going through the rules of just trying to appease me you know because i'm the teacher and giving all these nice responses um, but maybe I wonder deep down, it's just, they're just eye rolling <laughs> and just yeah. saying, okay, whatever. There's your agenda again. Because they kind of know that, um, oh, I teach this in the AP class. So I have mostly junior seniors and I do it right after the AP test, which is early May. And then I have three, four weeks with them still. And so they know coming in after the AP test, it's... We're talking about racism in physics. That's Tavoris class. So that's always a struggle for me, Ruth. Um, that doubt is always there. Yeah. Me too. And I think I kind of feel like some of what I'm going towards is just leaning into, I hate that phrase. I hate the phrase leaning. But anyway, I'm just embracing like, yeah, you're going to hear about the patriarchy in my class. And that's old lady physics, Ruth, or whatever. So I'm trying to, I guess, embrace that identity. But it is, if I'm talking to a group of, men more i definitely feel way, way more self-conscious about mm -hmm. whatever i'm talking about mm -hmm. and i think there are things there are things that johan can be for his students that i can never be as a white man and there are things that i can be for my students that maybe johan can't be as a as a man of color and and so i think we all sort of play our part in this. I think you were right, Ruth, to say, like, it would be really nice if it wasn't just me, but it was my other teachers. Um, the idea behind making this resource free and accessible to teachers is like, yeah, we'd like everybody at some point to start talking about this so that it wasn't, it wasn't just the job of one teacher in the department. I think, I think everything I teach, I know that like, I'm going to hit some students and they're going to get it from my colleague in another class, the ones that I miss. And um, the the hope is that over time it becomes part of what they learn going through our school or going through through multiple schools. So I certainly think a lot about the students who I don't reach. And I think that's one of the things that makes me a good teacher, like that doubt that Johan talked about. I have my own version. Um, but that's just part of reflective practice and and... Again, I think the hope is that over time, like we as a science teaching community, reach all the students. That's why we need everyone, right? Mm -hmm. As teachers, you know, we have to see ourselves as part of the machine. You know, I mean, we are in this in this in this in this system that is privileging white Western culture over over others um, without people knowing it. You know, that's why it's so endemic. It's just normal. It's just the way it is. And so I think it's not enough to, to like you said earlier, Moses, just to teach kinematics. And, and you know, I got to think about what my students are internalizing when I just say, you know, oh, this is it. And this is Newton's laws, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of positioning, I need to see myself as as a cog in the machine that is innately racist that privileges certain cultures and and looks over the rest and i got to ask myself well what can what what should i do right 
um, as a person of color, I mean, I'm already in the disadvantaged group. So I'm like, of course, I'm going to fight it. <laughs> you know what? And if I don't, then, you know, my soul's not going to rest when I die, <laughs> you know? So, so that's, so that's my personal stand on this, you know, why I want, why I need to do this. And there's a, there's, I think a different process for, for people with privileged identities, you know, like what coming it's a thing that I, and I'm talking here like more as a human than as an educator at the moment. I am constantly relearning why systemic racism harms me as a white person, why systemic sexism harms me as a man. Um, and then I forget it, and then I relearn it, and then I forget it, and then I relearn it. And um, But I really do believe on a core level, like, like I'm not doing this work for the benefit of students of color or for female students. I'm doing this work for the benefit on some level for all students, but also for myself. Like mm -hmm. I also mm -hmm. won't rest when I die. If I have been uh, a cog for something that when it's made explicit, I really don't want to be a cog for. Mm -hmm. Totally. That is super powerful. I'm glad you said that, Johan, because I think that that is like, if you peer behind the curtain, that's, that's the truth of things. Yeah. And you know, this, you know, that, that nugget of information, <laughs> I guess a nugget of information, right. That perspective, you know, I've, I, 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 I guess I recently just had that aha moment about that, you know, that we are, we really need to evaluate that we are just a cog and we need to do our thing to kind of unwork this system, this machine. Um, so yeah, that speaks to, I think the reflective nature of teaching, you know, the reflective nature of, of what we do and the, the, the need to constantly look, look at our practice, look at ourselves to make ourselves better. Because, you know, students look up to us, <laughs> whether we like it or not, <laughs> you know. That's only something I've started to realize lately. Because you're like, who, me? I'm just an idiot. But then, like, they do still just because <laughs> you're in the front of the room. Like, you have this sort of, yeah. So I guess uh, one question that we would have is, what do you think is a good way for people to start implementing this curriculum without necessarily um, taking over their whole class and making that? Because that's something I felt... Whenever I mention it to people, the pushback you get is Where? the minutes. Right. I have all these minutes and I have to use them for all of these, you know, special equations. And so how would you, if you were giving someone advice about how to start implementing this? Because I think you have a great um, emphasis in start in a way that you can right. manage. And so what would that kind of look like? When, when I, so I do this in my AP class regularly because I have that chunk of time at the end. Um, I also teach ninth grade physics and it's a little tougher there because number one i teach with a team right and and we all have to be aligned and i can't veer too far away otherwise i will not cover the content that that i need to um so what i've done before was to intersperse things here and there um you know um i might i think three years ago in my ninth grade class i said Let's construct a physics person. What would this person look like? So what are, what are some qualities that a physics person would look like? So I think I did that first quarter. And then second quarter, I say, let's revisit this physics person. What would that look like? Some kind of targeting identity, right? How they, how they see themselves. Um, I might give um, surveys about, hey, let's think about um, under, uh, underrepresented people. I might give them, oh, I remember doing this. Um, I, I gave them uh, the Texas versus... Uh, Fisher versus University of Texas case. So I'll give the backstory. So there was a student in in, in the University of Texas. She sued um, 
she sued the school because she was not accepted and somebody else who was a person of color was accepted, I guess, in lieu of her, right? Mm -hmm. And so she sued and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court, back and forth between uh, Supreme Court, lower courts, back and forth. But then, and then in one of the most, most famous hearings, right, Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice says, you know, well, what, what's the word? What unique perspective? What unique perspective does a student of color, a black student, give in a physics class? And of course, that set off all sorts of things. And so I, I kind of gave that. I kind of gave that as a prompt. I'm like, what do you think is happening here? Is this, what do you think the, the, the Chief Justice means by unique perspective a student of color gives to physics class? So, so I, I, I remember giving that. And then maybe a few weeks later, you know, do a follow-up, say, well, has anything changed between that? between what you said at the beginning and now and all in between right you're you're going through kinematics i'm talking about newton's laws etc cetera, etc cetera. so so that's one way to do it um mm-hmm. the 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 um the hard part with that is getting traction or getting con- staying consistent you know because because of the you know infinite number of tugs and pulls that you have as a teacher right uh this can get waylaid really really easily so sure. so just just being consistent i think is is going to be crucial and in small bits, but also if you can manage, find a thread. You know, how do you stitch all these together so that it's it makes sense and not just random surveys that come out. You know, sure. so that's 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 the struggle I have with with ninth grade. Um, you know, with this pandemic and with this remote learning that we have, which is nice, we've decided to cut our curriculum in half. Mm. So we're going to teach half. And so I've decided oh. I'm going to put the whole URC in a chunk and maybe the second semester around January, February, after the first semester, plop it in there. So nice. we'll check in a year from now, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, think, yes, please. Uh, in some ways, this feels like a similar question to the one that we were talking about before. Like all teachers are constantly making choices about what to teach or not to teach and uh-huh. um I think it's actually the wrong framing to say, well, I have so much other stuff to teach, so there's no space for the URC. I think it's, well, you're choosing mm-hmm. to teach this other stuff and not the URC. And I know that some people's hands are tied and they don't have that choice, but I don't think there's any science teacher who feels like they cover their whole discipline in their class. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly leaving stuff out. It's just a matter of what we want to leave out and what we want to include. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, this is like maybe... I, this has to go in because leaving it out mm-hmm. isn't satisfactory. Um, and for me, I have the flexibility to leave some other stuff out. But I think this is also where that modularity is really useful. There are some people who teach their URC is a one-day lesson about objectivity in science. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's all they have space for. And that's honestly, like, that's a really great step towards, you know, a more inclusive science education compared to the alternative. Totally. And I like I like that you say that's a good step because that seems like a doable first step from the instructor right. point of view, too. Totally. So totally in terms of curriculum and also in terms of going down this new and scary path of talking about different these topics. We're still moving towards like a systemic way of taking in the impacts of the URC on students. Um, but anecdotally uh-huh. and, you know, sort of passing the sniff test in my own class it's the most popular thing I do all year. And so I feel relatively confident that that first step, if you're listening to what students say, 
very well might lead to more steps in the future. Like it doesn't feel scary for students or for teachers to start small because I think this work necessarily expands every time I do it a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. And 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 I really think that a objectivity lesson is so popular. I like it so much because it the 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 breadth of insight you get from students is so awesome. You know, um, the 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 level of of awareness that they have about science and what constitutes science and. Um, yeah, that's always a good step, in my opinion. That's my stamp of approval. <laughs> and and I love it. <laughs> uh, just to piggyback on that, like, uh, I again, I don't think this is. It's not like I'm a science teacher and then I hit pause on that and I do the ORC and then I get back to teaching science. Like, even if my only goal was to pump out more physicists, I think spending time talking with those future physicists about what is the nature of this practice that's really valuable, probably more valuable than like a day spent on thermodynamics, which they're going to mm -hmm. be able to learn at some point. So, mm -hmm. so I think talking about the nature and the culture of these fields is really part of our job. Anyway, it's, it's like very aligned with my course goals and my goals as a teacher, um, as opposed to being something mm -hmm. separate. Mm -hmm. Love it. Moses, you said something about pumping up physicists. It reminds me of this idea oh, of yeah. a pipeline. Right. So there's so, yeah, right. We're in this kind of a pipeline educational system where where science STEM is is meant to produce scientists, engineers, mathematicians, et cetera. And I think what we do is we're trying to humanize it. You know, I I, I quote um, a science educator from Canada, Glenn Aikenhead, and and he and among other and a few other scholars, you know, they, they have this idea of, well, what is it to humanize? science you know what is it to make science applicable to to everyday lives because not, not everyone's going to be a physicist or a scientist or engineer so how can they find how can they do physics in a way that makes sense to them right and and, and that goes back to identity right you want to bring physics to them so that they can identify with it in the context of their lives and that's such a hard thing to do you know on in in a in a high school, you know, they all have these preconceived notions. Oh my God, it's physics. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so, so that's always the challenge, right? For, for, for me as a teacher, how do I make the connections? So their life, their lives and what they've experienced and how they interpret the world, which is, I think of, which to me is physics. How do I connect that with canonical physics uh -huh. in a way that <clears throat> doesn't say that they're wrong? You know, I hate the word misconception. Yeah. Because it devalues yeah. them. You know, so so how do I make that connection? That's the key. Do you know what's funny? It's like, you know when we think about physics being neutral and there's not an agenda or something. I went to a really interesting talk at the AAPT by Ayush yeah, yeah. Gupta and they were mentioning oh my god, mind blowing, but they mentioned it was just a thing they said about bullets and sports and how much of that there is in the first semester of physics and once you see it you can't unsee it but i was thinking of the pipeline and the sort of the war machine but it's really funny i've mentioned that really casually to students and i wasn't trying to make a big thing out of it and all semester every example they were doing they were like oh sports it is another sports one or here's another bullets one and they were really into kind of noticing that and being like oh what we think of as neutral is actually all of these things that are 
not and that was like this super I didn't it was not deliberate it was just something that blurted out in a class but they were into noticing that kind of hidden in momentum right it's a lot of collisions and bullets shot out and embedding into I know, a block. angry <laughs> yeah i tried to rewrite some problems where it's like you're roller skating and you're jumping over baby ducks but i don't think they totally That's landed great. but it was like trying to make it less less rockets and... that does connect to my yeah I, I had a colleague who noticed that and she started rewriting the problems to make it more Oh, I don't know, human, more feminine, maybe even, you know, because she noticed, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of these girls, you know, she's a she's a person of color teacher. Um, and she said, a lot of these girls don't like it. And I wonder if it's because a lot of these these uh, examples are masculine. And I go, oh, yeah, that's true. So she started rewriting these things. There's legit mm-hmm. problems. There was one American football problem that I still don't actually know what it was asking because I don't know what the terms meant. I was like what is this end zone you're speaking of? Like, I don't, I didn't understand the whole thing. So I couldn't access uh, it. Just a couple of like loose threads in my head that I'm going to try to stitch together, but this might come out weirdly. Um, I think I I do want to stress that the URC is sort of a template for talking about science. And most of our conversation today has revolved around physics because Johan and I are physics teachers. And most of the, most of the teachers on the URC team are physics teachers. And that's just sort of a, a weird coincidence. Um, I think there's a element of physics that sort of lays bare this, like this objectivity, purity in science, maybe a little bit more clearly than than some of the other scientific disciplines. But I don't think that there's anything about the conversation that the URC promotes that couldn't be transported over to is biology objective or is computer science um, racialized. So so that's important to mention, even though, you know, I I put everything in a physics context because that's the world I live in, and maybe that's actually the that might actually be the segue. Uh, when Johan was talking about like finding a through line, um, I think the through line is doing what he said before about like finding ways to connect all of these ideas to students' lived experiences. And the URC makes that in some ways like a little artificially easy because we're talking directly about identity. But the challenge for me as a teacher, which I'm very much still working on, is how do I figure out how kinematics connects to my students' lived experience instead of how do I do the URC and then get back to kinematics? Like I, sure. the, the goal for me as a teacher is, is to expand this idea that who you are impacts how you learn to everything I do instead of just sort of walling it off in this one unit that does it pretty well. I think what I'm saying is I, I think the thread that I hope someday will run through my teaching is what relevance does all this have to our lives? And, That's the golden nugget. And the URC, I think... <laughs> You know, we can ask students directly, okay, look back on your first memory as a science student. In what ways was that impacted by your gender? That's pretty easy to ask in the URC. It's a little, for me as a teacher, I think in part because I I learned physics in a non-identity-based way, I sort of think, well, it's time to teach kinematics. I'm just going to talk about bullets and and cannonballs and so there's a challenge there for me to relearn how to how to introduce these scientific topics in a way that's actually just as um, open and influenced by students' experience as the URC is. Um, and again, I'm using physics because that's what I do in my classroom. But I think the same challenge is there for chemistry teachers. And and I hope that that's I think the goal of the URC right is to how this might come out discombobulated, but. Here's the URC as one entity. Here's canonical physics as another entity. How do you mesh it together 
so that it connects with students' lives. I think that's 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 really what we're striving for, right? How how can we teach science in a contextual contextualized way, meaning you know. You, you don't see kinematics just for the science. You also see, well, you know, whoever developed kinematics or, you know, whatever, it, there's all these social issues embedded in it. And then the next layer then would be, well, how do we then as educators make that relevant to students? You know, so that's the big question that I always am trying to answer. And it's always going to be a question. One of the things I really like about this way of thinking about teaching and about the URC is um, as opposed to like a pipeline model, which is like, what can I as a teacher do to cram more female students into the field? It's just like, how can I be a better teacher for all of my students? And if, if the field becomes more diverse as a result, that's great. But really, as Johan said before, we're talking about changing the culture of the field and seeing the representation as a, as a like windfall benefit of that instead of, trying to solve the problem of students not going into the field. Yeah, we have, um, in our university, we have, we're a Hispanic serving institution, and we also have a huge number of first generation students. And a really big thing I've had, just this is totally anecdotal from talking to students, but it's almost the, the idea that you have to leave your culture behind to go into physics culture. And I love the idea that by talking about these things in class, you're allowing people to bring their activist self to the classroom or they're the you know the aspect of themselves where they're like but I want to make a difference for my community and having that just not be we're only talking about bullets today and then maybe we'll section off to this you know like just the merging of all of that and having it just feels really relevant especially for those students but for like yeah. Moses said for everybody. and you know hopefully with you know with with talking about you know whatever objectivity racism you know it it catches students' attention at the very least, and then gets them to, you know, kind of tune in more to the class. And then the hope is, yeah, it gives them, gives them the tools and the language to, to make sense of this. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. You know, it's, they can bring in the, their selves, they can bring in who they are, and we try not to shut them, shut them off by just saying, oh, let's talk about bullets and cannonballs today. And for the students, for the students who crave the bullets and cannonballs, who in my experience are more white male students, I think this comes back to this idea of like reclaiming your humanity. Like I, I think some of those students would really benefit from learning about science beyond the sort of like, you know, hard lines of bullets and cannonballs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wonderful. I always am. I'm always very negative and anxious. So I'm just going to bring that in to the last thing. Um, <laughs> Have you, like, I get really nervous that someone's going to say something horrific. Do you know what I mean? And, like, how to kind of... How students would say it? Yeah, like, I've been in a space, and again, I'm not equating gender with race, but I've been in a space where people have been openly talking about whether women had the brain power to do physics, and it was really horrible. And so I wonder about protecting students. Like, some of my anxiety about bringing this stuff up is, oh, man, if I open this can of worms some kids are going to say horrible things and it's going to really hurt other kids in the class or do they need to be here while these white male students are working out their issues out loud or you know what I mean like how do you kind of okay sorry and that's like a, a short one I love the way I saved this really soft, soft, like complicated difficult question I'm like just two minutes or less how do you deal with it? no I'm kidding but um 
Yes. So is that an issue for you or is that something? Yeah. Yes. Always bringing the doom. Yes. <laughs> it is always an issue. And it's something that we've been really recently just, you know, just discussing in depthly. You know, how do we how do we protect, shield, not re-traumatize students, right? As as other students are trying to hash out their biases or whatever. And man, I I wish I knew the answer. I you know, the standard things are you know, before before talking about racism, you know, I and this has been my blind spot, you know, how before talking about racism, pulling students aside, hey, we are going to deal with XYZ. And I want you to know that number one, are you okay? Number two, know that you're not the representative of your your population. You know, what you say doesn't, this is yours. And number three, you know, if there's anything that I can do to you know, if you can opt out if you want, or is there anything I can do to make this a uh, an educational experience so that we all can learn? And then, then yeah, I'll do it. You know, and yeah, how do we emphasize? How do we make sure that it doesn't re-traumatize students? I, yeah, million dollar question. I think that's as best as I know. <laughs> but I like I like what you said and that like personal connection and mm-hmm. asking extra. Yeah. I want to sort of like uh, caveat what I'm about to say that like this is ripe for me to miss something as a white man, right? It's easy for me to say what I'm about to say. So um, I'm very open to being corrected on this, but I I guess I feel like the can of worms is already open whether or not yeah. oh, we're yeah. talking about it. Like like that, that female students are going to hear from their male colleagues if those male colleagues think that women aren't smart enough to do physics. They're going to hear that whether or not I create a space for it. And so as a teacher, it's my job to create a space for those students to learn that that's not true. And so that may come up in in the context of the URC, but I kind of feel like it's going to come up anyway and, and creating lessons where we can talk about that and where those students can learn how incorrect that belief is actually has the chance of changing the culture of the field instead of viewing those statements as too toxic to bring up. Um, you know, it, it has happened in my classes that students have said things that cause other students to wince. And then again, this is just my context. Those students who are harmed have a space in these lessons to say, that really hurt me. Here's why. And here's why you're wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a space mm-hmm. for growth for, for everybody. I think I could imagine a world in which that goes off the rails and it actually creates harm. And I think that that's why a lot of work in our classes goes into creating a context where students can be safe. Um, but yeah, I, like I, I do think students are going to be uncomfortable and it's my job as a facilitator to make sure that that discomfort doesn't cross that line into causing harm. But I'm actually okay if a student says something that makes a marginalized student uncomfortable if there's a next step after that that creates yeah learning. i thought you were just going to finish no no and you know again i started off by saying like that's playing pretty fast and loose with the feelings of of students who are not like i can't see what it's like to be a student of color in a mostly white physics class um so i'm really hoping that that johan or other people will check me and say like eh, moses that's a little too loosey-goosey but I had a very powerful conversation with a student recently about silence and how 
silence, you can fill it with different things. And so maybe if you're the person of privilege and you're like, I'm a good person, everyone else is a good person, we're fine. Whereas like the minoritized student of color can sit there feeling like everyone hates me and thinks I shouldn't be here. And it's just, it, once you air things, people can... So like I, some director of CERN said some other hateful things about women and just something deeply unhelpful. And I remember asking someone, should we bring it up? And they were like, no, that's putting petrol on the fire. Like, do not bring it up. And then I did anyway. But then the students were like, yeah. And like the female students look so relieved at how indignant the male students were about this thing. And they were like, well, that's crazy. And that's ridiculous. And the female students were like, really, is that really what you think? You don't agree with that. And they were so happy because in the silence, they were assuming maybe everyone thinks this is how it is and agreed with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I think I think you're right. I think it's already happening. Like they already, like those messages are already out there even when we're not explicitly talking about them. I think, you know, in, in response to the loosey-goosey, you know, method, you know, it... It can be a learning experience if it is framed, managed properly. But but I am not discounting that it can really hurt people, you know. So so that's that's always that's my tension, you know. As as I I can see, you know, you you know doing it the way you do it right um but i can also see students shutting down and just i don't want to deal with it you know i'm sorry i i i wish i were more articulate about about what i'm I'm thinking about this you know because you know had you had i been i i bring it to my experience had i been had i tried to unpack what happened to me in school 10, 15 years ago, I would have probably been pissed, hurt, or just close-minded. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so then if, I guess, age gives you perspective and so or experience or just being in a space where other people are helping you out, I think that matters. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. So <laughs> that's where I'm at with, with how to facilitate this. Well, didn't we have a plan that we're going to meet next year and we'll have it all figured out by then? So that'll be perfect. We'll hey, one step, a... one step closer, right? I'm thinking, yeah. I'm thinking of an example. Um, there's a lesson in the URC where students are asked to hypothesize about why, why underrepresentation might exist. Um, right. Yeah. And that's a very intentional space that runs the risk of surfacing some really awful ideas. And so when I facilitate that, and I should say, like, then the homework that night in my class is to go investigate the validity of those hypotheses. So my approach as a teacher, and I'm not, this is a thing that keeps me up at night. I'm not sure that this is the right approach. In fact, it might be explicitly the wrong approach. Um, Because I do think some of my students, especially my white students, might think that there are fewer black physicists because black people are not as smart. They might not say that out loud, but they might think that um, when we, or they might wonder that um, because they've been led to believe that America is a meritocracy. And so if you see, you can see in the number of physicists who deserves to be a physicist and not. Um, 
as a facilitator, I'm sure I make sure that that hypothesis comes up so that students can then debunk it. And if students don't debunk it, I'm ready to debunk it. So that's like a very, again, I'm not sure that that's the right approach, but I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't feel right as a facilitator just turning that over to students and letting them go where they want to go with that because I do oh, yeah. think that could really create a place where students leave thinking like, oh, I guess white people really are smarter. And that's, that's yeah. just not true, let alone really harmful. Um, but I also, I think in, in the space to discuss that, it's way more effective for students to really form that, to understand that there is no racial benefit or basis for intelligence than if I were to just walk into class and say, hey, everyone's equally as smart. Um, yeah. But I, you know, one of the questions in my head that I'm struggling with is there's a risk of trauma there. And who is benefiting from me raising that question? Is it the students mm-hmm. of color who are benefiting mm-hmm. from having that taken mm-hmm. off the table? Or am I, am I sort of sacrificing the experience of students of color so that my white students can learn a lesson right. that they should be learning on their right. own anyway. So right. I think I'm just trying to be really transparent with where the rubber meets the road on these questions. Mm-hmm. And Moses, you, you point that out because that that has been my blind spot, you know, just in, in teaching this, you know, I, I got <laughs> this past implementation this spring, I completely forgot about that, that nuance of, because the way we present, the way the, the curriculum presents itself is that, Pick a hypothesis that you think other people have about why there's an underrepresentation. So it removes them from it and it allows allows mm, the great. most, you know, like say toxic um, reasons to be out there. Mm-hmm. And and I completely forgot to phrase it that way. <laughs> and so and so I don't know if I if if you know my students who who did it with me were you know injured in in some way or the other so so it's a reminder you know that we all have work i have work to do just to always have my my radar up and tuned to all these frequencies right so that i can i can see all this and it's dare i say impossible (laughs) to keep track of all these these things because it's such a complex Mm -hmm. set of issues that we deal with and they're multi-layered and they're all kind of interwoven into one big amalgamation of ideas that trying to make sense of it is just more than daunting and you know so just so that listeners don't walk away thinking like i would not touch that with a 40-foot pole (laughs) sorry i like i had to bring us to the negative endpoints right that has by and large not been my experience that it ends mm-hmm, badly. Mm-hmm. And again, caveat, like maybe, maybe as a white male teacher, my students who are harmed by this are just like, I, I'm not going to tell you that this was awful to me, but um, in my classes, I put a lot of effort into checking with students beforehand, as Johan mentioned right. and checking with them sort of in person and anonymously afterwards. And um, well, I think it's really good to be intentional about these possibilities and I don't want to be, loosey-goosey with it and the experiences of my sort of privileged and oppressed populations have been positive over and over and over and over and over as far as i can tell so grain of salt but thank you for bringing that to the end of it sorry i love to be like this is terrifying and yeah ruin it but i'm glad you bring it back that's awesome i cannot thank you enough for this fantastic wonderful conversation i feel like i want to do 10 thousand more podcast interviews with you about every single nugget you brought up because there's so much 
fruitful, wonderful stuff there. And thank you so much for the work you do creating this, because I think this is something that we're all are mildly terrified of and all getting more and more aware of why it is crucial and having that somebody map out the steps. I don't know if other people, if you've ever listened to the podcast, but I really want life rules all the time and I don't want gray areas. I want people to tell me what to do. And so I am infinitely grateful for this wonderful curriculum. Oh, you're most welcome. This is awesome. Totally. It's, uh, it's really delightful to talk to other people who are interested in this. Agreed. And just, if I may, just to hear Johan talk about it, I, it's really cool to hear other people who are brilliant do a similar thing in their own way. I just, I, the podcast I want to hear is like other people talking about how they implement the URC because I, I geek out on that. Right. OMG, I'm just having a big dream about what the podcast next year could look like. Maybe we can put that invitation out to people. That would be fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Multi, multiple users. Thank you guys so much. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I, I appreciate it. I think Moses and I, we appreciate yeah. the yeah. opportunity to talk about this. You know, like, you know, this is a labor of love for all of us. We're not going to pay for this. <laughs> this is no, yeah. on the side, if you will. So, so thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Professor Podcast with Ruth and Claire. We're delighted to have you as a listener and we would love to hear from you. And if you want to email us, our address is contactprofessorpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any of your suggestions for future shows or professor quotes that you might want to share with us, or even just things that have come up for you when you were listening to previous episodes. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would love if you would spread the word. So the best way to spread word is by telling people you know, if you think they should listen to it, or you can leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.